turn to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, we're going to go through, Lord willing, the next few months on Wednesday nights, uh, preach through the book of Daniel. And uh, one of my favorite Bible characters, probably one of yours as well. It seems like everybody likes Daniel. Um, there are so many great stories here. There are so many parallels between the culture that he lived in and the culture that we live in. Um, very practical. I, I know the end of the second half of the book um, is really about eschatology, and eschatology is the study of the end times. And there's a lot. Uh, the book of Daniel is really foundational. It's the foundational Old Testament book for the study of the old time for the uh, end times. It's the Old Testament foundation for that. It really is a help. Um, and even uh, Jesus Christ himself referred to things in the book of Daniel uh, when talking about the end times. We'll, we'll get to that point, but tonight I want to read just the first uh, four verses of Daniel and then we'll get into the preaching. Let's stand together. Daniel chapter 1 uh, verses 1 through 4 is where we will spend our opening service and opening sermon on this. Um, it says Daniel chapter 1 verse 1. It says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah came Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. As I read these verses, for some reason, my mind went, and Brother Juan might appreciate this, my mind went to combat sports. You say, what? You know, combat sports, you know, boxing or kickboxing or MMA or um, UFC or, uh, you know, ABC, whatever it is. Shows you how much I know. As I envisioned, though, the clash of cultures in Daniel 1, I couldn't help but think of two guys getting into a ring or into a cage and just going after each other, knowing only one of you will walk out. One man enters, oh no, two men enter, one man leaves, that kind of a thing. And, and you say, well, what makes you think about that? Well, I, I know most of us will never be in that situation, but one thing is certain is that we are in a nose-to-nose -nose battle with a godless culture. And you think, well, someday I'm going to be in the cage. Someday I'm going to step into the ring. Well, I, I want you to understand that someday is today. See, if we're not careful, we will allow... The influence of the enemy and the influence of the culture to render us ineffective for God. And we must, like Daniel and his friends, know that the enemy has some tactics. And if we don't know the tactics, then we won't make it out of the cage. See, that's the idea I'd like to look at tonight out of Daniel. To lay some groundwork, but also then just to point out 
the situation that he was in. This is not an easy situation. This was not a walk in the park. Daniel is in the ring. And it's him against a godless culture. And if Daniel is not prepared, then he will be left on the mat. And the culture will be raising its arms in victory. And we have to be careful of the exact same thing. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, we love you and we need you. And I pray that you bless our time together. Bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It seems like the best stories, I think we'd all agree, the best stories seem to always have a good guy and a bad guy. And stories can be structured in, in many different ways, but it's nearly impossible to have an effective story without a protagonist, somebody that you're rooting for, and either an antagonist or opposition of some kind, either through a person or through a set of circumstances. And, and sometimes in stories, good and evil can be confused. You might find yourself at times rooting for the bad guy or rooting against what is supposed to be the good guy. You know, like in Jaws, if, if there's an annoying person, you might find yourself rooting for the shark. I don't, I don't know. I, in some stories, it can be hard to tell, right? It can be hard to tell who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Personally, I don't really like those kinds of stories. I like stories where it's very obvious, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy, there's no gray line. I just like that because primarily, really, that's how the Bible is. When you read the Bible, you know, as you read the stories of the Bible, you've got a good guy and you've got a bad guy. It's clear who's good, it's clear who's bad. In the grand scheme of things, those that follow and serve and obey God, they're the good guys. Those that are opposed to God or opposed to God's people, those are the bad guys. And Daniel is a story of a good guy really facing a whole culture of bad guys. See, when Daniel and, and these other young teenagers were taken captive and transported from Israel to Babylon, they came face to face with the enemies of God. They, they, they had likely been raised by godly parents. I mean, just based on their names that they had. You know, Daniel's name is God is my judge. Hananiah there in verse 6, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is what, who is what God is? I love that question. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. Those are the meanings of these young men's names. And if nothing else, it seems as, as though these four young men were, had spiritually devout parents. They, they were raised by godly parents. You say, well, you know, what's in a name? You just never know what somebody's name means and if that, they really live up to that name. Except that these four men that were listed, these young men, actually took a stand for God. They were left standing. And, and, and I just want to remind you that how you raise your children determines how they stand later. And, and there may be times you, you may have a child that goes off his own way because... And let me just encourage parents that that's happened too. Um, every person alive has a free will. And, and every one of us are sinful beings. And you can do everything right and sometimes children make the wrong choices. But as a general rule, if you raise your children to love God and serve God, uh, that will carry and stay with them um, throughout the rest of their lives. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, the Bible says. We have to believe those promises. I happen to believe, I, I believe that Daniel and these, and these friends of his were raised by parents 
who instilled in them godly principles so that they had something to stand on when their parents were no longer around. These four young, young teenagers, they, they were staring a wicked culture in the face. They didn't have parents to tell them, you can do this. They didn't have a church or a youth group to tell them, hey, stand strong. You can do this. They didn't have other godly friends they, to, to, to stand with them in a godless culture. And to our young people today, let me just say this. You can be alone and stand for God. It's possible. Right. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, if you went to public school and I went to public school, then you know standing for God at school is hard. But what we can learn, one takeaway that we can learn from these young men is that you have enough with your faith in God and God's word. If you will make a decision, you can stand for God in a wicked culture. But, but it's not easy. And maybe the best representation, the best visual representation of the conflict in this story. You know, I've got good guy, you've got the bad guy. Maybe the best visual representation is Daniel sitting in a lion's den. And we know that happens to him some chapters later. Later, he's no match for the lions. I mean, in his strength, he has no help. He can't do anything against lions, but he survived because he was dependent on God's help. And if that should give us an encouragement tonight that are because we live in a lion's den. Our culture is a lion's den. The attacks on faith and the attacks on morality, the attacks on religious freedom, the attacks on the value of a human life. This is a den of lions. This is a culture that's changed. We've departed from God's word as a general rule. And if you're going to remain true to God's word, you will find yourself in a cage match against a godless, wicked culture. Two men enter, one man leaves. Will you be the one left standing? See, before you think this is really depressing, Pastor, this is not a great start. No, there's actually great encouragement to be found in the book of Daniel because the main protagonist, the main young man of the book, the book uh, is named after the guy that remains standing. It's possible. And many think Daniel is primarily a book about the end times, but it has really, it applies a lot to our lives today. See, there is an enemy that continues to oppose anything that is uh, right or anything that is godly or anything that is good. And in the book of Daniel, that opposition is represented by King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar set himself in opposition to the king's peop to God's people. He was trying to recondition Daniel and his friends. So he sets about to destroy the culture they carried with them and, and exchange it or replace it with a godless culture. So here's the, just some background to the study of, of the book of Daniel. Uh, one man in his commentary, John Goldinger, in, in his preface, he said that this book has, uh, has had to be rescued from three primary schools of thought. And, and you always, if you read a commentary on a book of the Bible, then you know the, the beginning before they ever really get into the meat of the book. Uh, they talk about, uh, a lot of times about uh, crit criticism and how there are those that say, well, this book is not really this, you know, there are people that throughout history that have said this book shouldn't be in the Bible and this and that. And, and conservative scholarship um, does, is a help in that it allows you to look at the reasons why Daniel should belong in the canon of scripture. And, and there are three schools of thought that are maybe reasons that people have said Daniel maybe doesn't belong here. There are those who were skeptical of its accuracy. 
See, there are some people about Daniel that say it's too precise to be prophecy. It's too precise. It can't be that accurate or that, pro- that prophetic. But, but that's the precision of God's word. And, and what's great is we know we can trust it because it's always been precise. And yet it's always been right. It's interesting how if we think, well, sometimes, that we, you know, the Bible, if it was more general, it would be easier to prove. No, the fact that it's precise is the reason we believe it. It's never been proven wrong. It gets down to specifics, yet it's always right. Another school of thought that has always been against Daniel belonging in the Bible, if you want to say it that way, is there are those who view it as children's stories. It's a book of stories. And listen, I believe this is a danger. I don't, I, it's not a bad thing. We used to tell our children stories and, and I would use their dolls and, and, and use their stuffed animals to kind of play the characters and things like that. You know, that's how they relate. But, but I think it's a danger sometimes to turn these serious Bible stories into kid stories sometimes. Uh, if you go to the Ark Encounter, how many of you have been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky? Many of you have. And if, if you get a chance, you should go. It's a pretty incredible um, uh, thing, a sight to see. It's the full-size Ark. I mean, it's amazing. And as you, one, one of the, the rooms they have after you've gone through the uh, Ark experience is they have a room full of children's books that are all about Noah and the Ark. And all these children's books they have laid out are always... It's a cute whale smiling and knowing, oh no, not a whale, no, I'm not Jonah in the whale. Um, it's, it's cute animals on the ark and they're smiling and, and Noah and his family are, you know, enjoying their life on the boat and sunshine and everything's happy. And, and sometimes I think we have to realize, you know, like Noah and the ark is a serious story about God's judgment of sin. And, and there are those who would look at a book like Daniel and just say, this is just a children's storybook. It's just, you know, Lion's Den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all of these things. No, this is a serious story that had a meaning. It had a purpose for the people of God. It's not simply to entertain us. It's here to give us some good, some, some good truth. There are also those that have viewed it as prophecy. That everything in the book of Daniel is prophecy that needs to be decoded. And there are passages in the, in the book of Daniel... ...that are figurative, but we approach this book like we do every book... ...as conservative, uh, fundamental Bible believers... ...that we take a literal approach, word-for-word approach to God's Word. That's how we interpret it. It's not, I mean, there are times where there are figures... ...and there are times where there are allegories... ...but for the most part, we, we accept the Bible at face value... The whole first half of the book is historical. It's giving historical record. The second half is apocalyptic, which is revealing something that, would, that hasn't arrived yet or hasn't come yet. It's revealing a truth. Um, but Daniel is not just talking about prophecy. We have truths to learn that, on, that help us on a practical level. And Daniel was, if, if you think about then his purpose for writing, Daniel was writing for the benefit of a generation of Jews... ...that would be returning to settle back in the land of Israel. You say, well, that sounds a lot like how you would explain Genesis. Well, that's accurate. You know, remember we would go through the book of Genesis... ...and and we'd say, what was the book of Genesis written for? Who was it written for? It was written for the children of Israel as they left what? As they left Egypt, 
wandered in the wilderness, were getting ready to take the promised land. The book of Genesis was given to them to give them faith in God, faith in God's plan for them as a people. It was a help to their faith. Well, Daniel is similar in that. If you think about Daniel lived um, in, an, in, in Babylon, just about the entire exile, and he wrote about these truths, and the first people that would be reading these are the ones that after 70 years were leaving Babylon and going back to Israel. So he's writing these truths because he wants them to get a few important things. He wants them not just to understand that God has a big plan for the future, but he's trying to get them to see, no, listen, in your past, God has been faithful. In your past, in the face of a tough culture that hates your God, God has come through for his people, and he'll continue to do that. They were about to leave Babylon and go back to Israel, and they were going back to ruins. I mean, Jerusalem lay in ruins. The temple lay, lay in ruins. The walls were broken down, and the children of Israel were leaving Babylon. And yes, they were servants, but they had some security there. But they were going all the way back to Israel. They were going to have to pick up a hammer. They were going to have to pick up tools and start rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple. And they had enemies that hated them and wanted to take them down. And they would very often, they were going to say, this is impossible. This is not going to happen. We can't do this. The opposition is too great. So what Daniel is doing is he's writing a book about people that stood in the face of opposition and God came through for them. And God can come through for Israel if he came through for Daniel and Azariah and Hananiah and Mishael. He can do that for you too. Amen. That's the idea. So what, what had they done though to disgrace God's name? I mean, why were they in Babylon? Well, uh, they were in Babylon because of sin. They were in Babylon because they had forsaken the law. They were in Babylon because they had forsaken the Sabbath day. These are all reasons given in the, in the prophets. They were in Babylon because they had turned to idolatry. They were in Babylon because God had seen them. He had warned them countless times and says, I am your God. You should serve me and me only, but they ignored it. And so it's no surprise that with the departure from God's law and their venture into all of these other idols that they had gotten completely into immorality and wickedness. Uh, Isaiah says that they were a sinful nation, that they were laden with iniquity, they were evildoers, they had despised the Holy One of Israel. So you know what God did? He raised up an enemy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar from the country of nation of Babylon. He marched into Jerusalem and he took them captive and carried them back with him. Listen, God does not take sin lightly. God saw their sin and he saw their purposeful, deliberate disobedience. And he said, I will raise somebody up and I will no longer protect you. The last good king that, that, is, that Judah had was Josiah. He died in the year 609 B.C. Four years later, 605 B.C., under the reign of Jehoiakim, which is Josiah's second son... Here comes Nebuchadnezzar, and, jo and Jehoiakim wasn't doing right. God removed all of his protection, and he said, Because of your wickedness, I will allow you then to be carried away captive. And many believe that Daniel was among the first, that first wave of captives to be carried back to Babylon. God allowed his people to be in exile because of sin. 
I believe probably the primary reason that he allowed it was because of their idolatry. And you know, it's interesting. He allowed them to be carried away and taken captive by a nation that was steeped in idolatry. And you think, well, that's, that's pure coincidence. I don't believe so. I believe that he allowed that to happen so they could see, you want idols? I'll give you idols. You want to give yourself to idols that can't speak or can't answer your prayers? I will put you in a position that you are a slave to those that believe in idols. Then you can tell me how much you still like idolatry. We find out, I mean, after all of this, it's interesting. Israel didn't have as much a problem with idols anymore. Because they found out what it was like to be, to be subservient and to be uh, uh, under the bondage of those that were into idolatry rather than serving the one true God. And listen, this reminds me of young people sometimes. They think, well, the bondage of, of all the rules I have at home, I, I just want to be released from that. And I want to go enjoy life like I can live it. I just want to live it up. And sometimes God will allow you like the prodigal son to go and live that lifestyle and you find out it's not all it's cracked up to be. And when you find yourself in bondage to the sins that you once longed for, you realize, man, life with God is way better than this. Life with my parents is way better than this. Young people, be careful of assuming that what you don't have is something you would enjoy. You have parents that love you and have kept you from the wickedness of this world because they know the danger that comes from it. So they returned to Israel. They would have wanted to read words of encouragement. They would have wanted to read about Daniel and, and these others that stood for God because that would give them confidence as they returned and Daniel reflects on the past. He gives them encouragement. And, and he gives them courage for the future as well. It, but listen, if you're going into the cage, one of the things that really stands out to me as I read this is that there is a fight that is relentless coming at us. Daniel found this out. And maybe that's part of the lesson. He says, the fight is relentless. The enemy hates your God. It's possible to stand, but it won't be easy. What he's kind of letting them see is that if you're going to get in the cage, you better know the, enemy, the enemy's tactics. And I want you to notice what Nebuchadnezzar focused on. When he besieged Jerusalem, he targeted two key areas, okay? So that's the background, and y'all seem so excited about that, so we'll move on to the application here. When Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, he targeted two, two things. See, Nebuchadnezzar understood this. He understood that if you're going to conquer a nation, you need more than just a military siege. And, and by that I mean, it's happened many times, and you know this, it's happened many times in scripture that, I'm sorry, in history, that a country takes over another country, but the people hold on to their culture, and they remain patriotic, and they eventually rise up and overthrow their captors and take their freedom back. See, a military siege is, is bad, but if you can't conquer or change the heart of the people, they will always be a danger to you. A revolution is always a risk if you don't change the people's minds. So look what well, Nebuchadnezzar, what he does then, he knew it wasn't enough to capture their bodies. He wants to change their minds. He wants to capture their hearts. How does he do that? Well, first, he targets their faith. He targets their faith. Look at the, 
the ver- verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar targets. He doesn't go into the schools and take their textbooks. He doesn't go into their their merchant stores and take their products. No, he goes into the temple and he takes the vessels of the house of God. And as he carries them out of Jerusalem, he says, I'm stronger than your God. I have his vessels. His message to the children of Israel was, I am so strong, I've even conquered your faith. I've conquered your God. Your faith is nothing I'm stronger than it. So he transports then those vessels to the whole, from the holy city of Jerusalem to this place called Shinar. Shinar in scripture always represents that which opposes godliness. Shinar is modern day Iraq where Babylon it was. In Genesis 10 it was where Nimrod rose up and he had a place, his kingdom in Babel. It's the same place where the tower of Babel was built In Zechariah 5, Zechariah calls it the place where wickedness makes her home. And all of this points to the significance of a place called Shinar as the major center of cultural and civilization that is opposed to God in every way. Shinar represents all that is against God. It is all that God is not. Someone wrote about Shinar, it's the place that is hostile to faith. We live in Shinar. I mean, in case you're not making the parallel, no, our culture is a Shinar, modern day. Our culture hates our God. Our culture hates Jesus Christ. You can't even say his name in public in a prayer anymore. Our culture has removed anything about God from its uh, public education system. Our culture hates what we believe. It hates the fact that we're called a church. It hates the fact that I'm standing up here and preaching about something like this tonight. If it could get its hands on what I'm preaching tonight and what churches like ours are preaching. I mean, they'd come after us if they cared. We're not at a position where people even are probably paying attention. But I'm telling you, they hate everything that we stand for at Shinar. And if Nebuchadnezzar is successful in changing the way they served God, then he could be successful in changing how they lived. He just needed to change their heart. He knew this is how it works. The culture starts by attacking our faith. And it attacks God's word. It questions God's word. Listen, that's happening right now. And that's not just happening out there. It's happening in churches. And I, let me just tell you, I know that there's a, we could get into a lot of this and we could study about the Bible and about the King James Bible. I'm just telling you, we have, we have God's word in our hands. This is, this is an accurate, reliable translation of God's word. This is God's word in English right here. We don't have to wonder if we have God's word just because somebody says, well, I don't know about that or this change or this discrepancy or this error. No, just by faith, we believe that we have God's word. It's never been proven wrong. Why, why would you go try to find something else? We have what we need. But that culture is attacking God's word. It's trying to, to denigrate or destroy our faith in, in God's word. It's trying to make us question creation. 
It's trying to make us question our faith, what we believe. It, it, you know, if you, the only thing that's not tolerated these days is somebody that still believes in Jesus Christ. The only thing that's not tolerated is somebody that's a Bible believer. Everything else is allowed unless you're a Christian, then you're not tolerated. That's, the, that's Shinar, that's where we live. The enemy knows then if our faith crumbles, everything falls apart. Nebuchadnezzar targeted their faith. But second, and this is important tonight. Second, Nebuchadnezzar targeted their young people. So he targeted their faith, but he also targeted their young people. He brought their young generation of Israelites, these sharp young men. He brought them into his own courts, his own administration. Most estimate that Daniel would have been a younger teenager up to about 15 years old. Nebuchadnezzar knew that the minds of young people are impressionable and he planned to shape their minds so that they would lead others to fall in line. Nebuchadnezzar understood that they had great potential. The enemy knows the potential in our young people. The enemy knows the potential in our children. And these, these young men, they were of good physical appearance. They were of, of great intellect. And they were socially mature. Nebuchadnezzar then points out, targets the young people that had the right physical and personal and social uh, tools. And he says, we're going to bring them up. We're going to reprogram them. We're going to recondition them to believe what we believe. And if we can get the influential ones to fall in line, some lead sheep... Then all the other sheep are going to fall in line. He brings them to, into his court, right into his palace. He gives them new training in a godless culture. In essence, they were perfect candidates for indoctrination. We're going to look more at those thoughts as we go, but here's the idea. Nebuchadnezzar intended to change a godly culture by targeting their faith and their young people. He was trying to change what they were. He was trying to change the culture of godliness by targeting their faith and their young people. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. See, today's enemy is targeting faith in Christ and it's targeting the mindsets of the next generation. Amen. It's part of the reason I wanted you to pray with our young people. This is Satan's age-old tactic. From the garden, he has, he, has, he has targeted or caused God's people to question their faith in God's word... And then he's also gone after those that were still impressionable. Adam and Eve had never had a conversation with anybody else. They were perfect prime targets. Because they were impressionable and they were innocent. They were, they were young, I mean young really, they were young even though they're adults, but they're young. They hadn't gone through a lot of experiences in life. And so here comes Satan and he causes them to question God's word. And he targets the impressionable ones. This is what has always happened. Listen, the enemy is targeting our faith and our young people. We say, well, how do we combat his targeting of our faith? Well, we must be among those who earnestly contend for the faith. Jude 3 says, earnestly contend for the faith. Keep your attention up here. How? How do you keep your... How, how do you earnestly can, contend for the faith? Well, you know your Bible. You got to read it. You've got to memorize it. And I'm not just saying placating it on a Wednesday night. Say, oh, read your Bible. No, study and learn your Bible. You've got to have faith because you don't know what we'll be standing against. Be able not just to have faith, but be able to teach others also. It's amazing how much more you know a subject when you prepare it to teach it. 
Imagine that God's going to use you to teach somebody else. Well, that's study that way. Have answers. How do you contend for faith that you don't know about? It's like Nebuchadnezzar, those, he took those vessels from God's house. Satan wants to take that which has been devoted for God and use it for his purposes. Listen, he wants to close the door of Eastside Baptist Church. He wants to divide, to divide the people of Eastside Baptist Church. He wants to render us ineffective. He wants to convince us to use our resources that should be for God and used for him and him alone for worldly purposes. He wants you to be convinced that you need that brand new car instead of giving to missions when we have our missions revival in October. That's what he's trying to convince you of. He's trying to convince you to use your talents at work, but don't volunteer at church because there's plenty of help there already. No, your talents, God placed you here as a member of this body. You have resources that our church needs. Don't only use what you can do for the world. Get involved at church. He wants you to use your resources outside of these walls. He wants you to be at the lake on Sundays instead of at church. Say, now you're meddling, preacher. Well, yeah, it's happening. He wants you to be at the ball field instead of church on Sundays. He wants you, and I know this can't, it's not always possible, and sometimes you gotta do, you got to really work against this. To, and even if you can't help it, I'm just telling you, encouraging you, listen, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Some of you, you're having to work on Sundays. I was just talking to Trevin. He has to work on Sundays. His schedule changed. And that, sometimes, Trevin, that's Satan's way of taking a new believer and wearing him down. And, and I would encourage you, do what you can to be at church and be around people. We have too many that came and were strong and flamed out because they lost sight of what matters to be with God's people. Amen. Pray for Trevin. Pray for these that are fighting that fight. Some of you have been there, right? You've had to face that. And, and I want to pray for him and pray for others that have to deal with that. Satan is trying to get you to take what should be used for God and use it for him. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to, give your, he's trying to get you to give your tithes to the lottery tickets. Say, I can't believe you're talking about that now. He's trying to get you to drop your money in a slot machine. I haven't talked about gambling. I don't know that I've ever talked about it here, but, but I'm, those are bad ways to use God's money. And I would encourage you, take what God has given you and use it for the Lord. Let him multiply it instead of trusting in something that's very untrustworthy to multiply your money for you. Listen, if the enemy can, take, can make advances in the church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth, he will erode our faith and, we, and Eastside Baptist Church will lose all of its influence. But we also must resist how the enemy is targeting our young people. Just consider the massive amounts of, of advertising spent on young people. They know if they can turn a young person onto a certain product or onto a certain service when they're young, they'll have a lifelong customer. Which tells me that parents, we've got to be careful about their phones. Amen. The apps they have or they use, they have ads. And the apps that they've got on their phones, um, they, they, they're supposed to be safe. But I'm telling you, young people are smart. Y'all didn't hear me say that. Young people are tech savvy. They can work around it. 
parents. And we've got to be mindful. Listen, if they're too young to use it for something productive, they don't need it. Don't give your, to- your, don't give your child a phone as a toy. Don't give them a phone until they u- u- can use it as a tool. Because a phone is not a toy. It should be a tool. And for our kids, what we've done is when they get their first job and they're, now they're at a job site and they're, they're not with us, then, then we'll allow them to have a phone so they can communicate with us. But that doesn't mean it's carte blanche. It doesn't mean that they have full reign. They can download any apps they want. They can do whatever they want. No, we control that. And we manage that because they're in our house. And, and we protect their minds and we're protecting their hearts. And you say, this is extreme. I know. Compared to the culture it is, but compared to what a godly Christian parent ought to do, I think this is right where we ought to be. And if you have a tighter standard for your children to have phones, praise the Lord. I think it's a smart thing. But you need a standard and you need control and you need some help to help them with this. Listen, no matter, in spite of what they're trying to tell you that your children are old enough to make life-altering decisions as little children, they're, they're not fully developed enough to understand consequences until they're adults. Don't just trust them for whatever. And I know our young people are saying, no, don't say that, Pastor. We're trying to protect you because we love you. We're, we're trying to be on your side. We want you to know that, that there are dangers out there. Listen, if you give them a phone, monitor and protect it. You can control those influences. If they want to work around, they might. But, but do all you can. You know, indoctrination is taking place entertainment I mean there are things being normalized in movies and TV shows and series lifestyles that when I was a teenager I would I I just couldn't imagine that it would just be thrown out there our kids are growing up and they're used to it and they're 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 you know and if we're not careful they're going to think it's no big deal in our education system, it used to be that the wicked indoctrination took place in universities. Now it's happening in elementary schools. Teachers with pride flags and teachers with uh, transgender flags all over the classroom. And they're saying, we'll help you and you don't have to tell your parents about this. Listen, I would have a very difficult time recommending certain public schools, most public schools... Honestly, in this culture, I'd have a tough time recommending them. But if my kids were in a classroom with a teacher displaying a pride flag or a transgender flag, I would pull them out of the class, pull them out of the school, and whatever it takes, if, even if it means homeschooling, I would do that as an alternative because they're targeting the next generation. They're indoctrinating our children, if nothing else. Our children are being desensitized to sin in the classroom. And that's never a good thing. Listen, the enemy is not trying to get us to engage in what's happening in the culture as much as they're trying to get us to become used to what's happening in the culture. They're not necessarily targeting our bodies to get involved as much as they're trying to get our hearts to turn. And you can hardly escape it. It's on social media. It's on television. It's in the, on the internet. You name it. It's everywhere. And it's less about getting people, God's people to engage than it is like a Trojan horse. They're just trying to get us to become used to it. Desensitized to it. And then when the time is right, here comes the siege. The cage match is already happening. See, what I'm afraid of is God's people are passively 
living their lives, but the enemy is actively preparing for battle. We're active, passively living life. The enemy, he's got a stockpile of weapons. He's got a plan. And his plan is in motion. What are you doing to strengthen your faith? And what are you doing to strengthen the next generation? So those areas are the way the enemy targets us and we must protect them. Daniel sought to influence God's people by writing this book to, he's to live for God in a culture that hated God and attacked their faith. Listen, who could you help to influence to strengthen their faith? Who might God have be on your heart, on your list to say, you know, this young person or this person, they're new in the Lord. I want to help them. I want to see them grow in their faith. Maybe God has somebody that he wants you to be a help to and you're kind of just living passively. What habits do you have that are weakening your faith? You know, your treatment of church, your treatment of, of your Bible reading, these are all things that right now they seem like not, not a big deal. But listen, when the enemy attacks, if you've let those things slip long enough, you are a prime candidate to be knocked out. What are you doing to help the next generation be strengthened? You say, well, I don't really have a lot of influence. Well, I gave you an opportunity just a little bit ago and said, hey, come pick a young person. Did you get up? Pray with one of them? Listen, these, these young people, they would love to have your influence. You say, well, they don't, I'm not cool. They know that. <laughs> We're not cool. But sometimes cool they what their their understanding of cool isn't really the definition of cool because young people the definition of cool is somebody who stands for god in a godless culture and if you're smart you'll attach yourself to people that stand for god in a godless culture but there are people in this room that can help them and you have influence more than you realize you say well i may not have influence but can you pray yeah you can pray for them I mean, prayer is where the protection of God really comes from. So are we going to pray for them? Are we going to help them in their strength, in their faith to be strengthened? What are you doing? Here's another question. What are you doing that if the next generation modeled what you do, would it weaken or strengthen their faith? Okay, so I'm going to deal with something. I mean, I'm just going to talk about church. You're in the habit of, of coming in a few minutes late, or maybe not being reliable. Okay, I understand that stuff happens sometimes. But if the next generation is watching that, and they do what you're doing right now and take it in excess, what's our church going to look like in 10, 15 years? So in other words, listen, we, we cannot be the ones to back off of these things because the next generation watching us will take it to an excess. What you do in moderation, you say the next generation will do in excess. So rather than say, well, they just need to do what's right. No, maybe they, they should see modeled what should be done right. And maybe, maybe we're not helping them because of our lack of commitment, because of our lack of faith. I'm just using that as an example. Parents, this is a big question for us. Because they see what we're doing at home. 
They know how consistent we are or how inconsistent. They know how faithful we are to God's word. They are watching us. They're listening to our words and they're watching our church habits and they're watching our Bible reading habits and they're watching what we watch. They're listening to our attitude towards spiritual authority. And what we do in moderation, they will do in excess. Listen, they are in for the fight of their lives someday. What we will experience probably will pale in comparison to what they will experience. And what I don't want is for them to say, well, if the generation before me had stood stronger, maybe I would have done better. Now, I want to be one that they look at and say, well, I had an example. If I, whether or not I did it, that's up to me, but I had an example in my dad, in my mom, in my pastor, in, in that person at church. I had examples to look at. And I can't blame anybody but myself. Listen, there's a cage match, and it's here already. And we've got to be ready in these two areas. Listen, we must be willing to strengthen our faith. And what we must be ready to invest in the next generation. Because you go into a cage match and you better study your opponent. Right, Brother Juan? You better watch his tendencies. You better know uh, what he leans on when he, when, he, when he makes this move. You know, what his strengths are, what his weaknesses are. You better study your opponent. And I'm telling you, if you study the opponent, if you study the enemy that we are facing, here's what he's coming after. He's coming after our faith. And he's coming after our children. And if we ever needed a strengthening in two areas, we need a strengthening of our faith and we need a strengthening of protecting and investing and helping our young people right now. Because the cage match has already begun. What are you doing in those two areas to help your faith and the faith of the next generation? Let's stand. Every head bowed. Thank you for your attention tonight. Let's seek the Lord tonight in these areas. Make sure that we are where we're supposed to be. Because we know the enemy always brings it. We know he never takes a day off. We know he's always coming after us. So what are you doing to strengthen your faith? And what are you doing to invest in the next generation? Because that's the tactic. And we've got to be ready for it. Father, pray that you'd have... Free reign in our hearts tonight. Thank you for the word and for the attention. And I pray that you'd help us to take seriously this humbling message, Lord, that we really need to hear. Give us the strength to stand as we should in Jesus' name.